Hello, Recreate family around the world. We hope to be back for in-person services next week. But in the meantime, we're still the same as we were. Recreate Church is a community of life and love where no matter your story, you're welcome, you're wanted, and you're loved. Have you noticed how much everything seems to cost these days? Cost is going up, up, and up. So I want to talk to you about the cost of something that seems too high. Um, Unless you're a very serious history buff, you're probably not going to recall the name of William H. Seward. Uh, But if not for him, the United States would be a much smaller place with a different story. William Seward was an outspoken opponent of slavery, and he became the Secretary of State under President Lincoln and President Andrew Johnson. Seward was, he had this idea to buy a big piece of land from Russia. Russia was all too happy to sell this land because it was attached to the northwest part of North America, was attached to Canada, and Canada at the time was a British territory. And the British and the Russians were enemies at the time. So the Russians figured this big piece of land was not worth defending, was not worth the trouble, was not worth the cost, and if they could sell it, they were glad to do so. The price tag was $7 million, or about $140 million today. And when you look at the amount of land, it doesn't sound like so much, but many people thought it was a terrible deal. The area was considered a frozen wasteland, not much good for anything except for caribou and snowball fights. Very few people lived there outside of the indigenous people groups who've carved a living out of the ice for centuries. But I have a feeling nobody bothered to ask them what they thought about the land being sold. Some news outlets at the time were very outspoken against the deal. They called it Seward's Folly. That is to say, Seward's Foolish Decision. And uh, one of them called it President Johnson's Polar Bear Garden. I thought that was great. And my favorite, one clever journalist suggested they call the new territory Walrussia. Like walrus and Russia. Walrussia. Okay. It sounded really funny to me. I loved it. I can only imagine what would be said on Twitter today if it was happening. And I'm sure the memes would be hilarious. Despite the criticism, despite the pressure, despite the fact that Some people thought it wasn't worth the cost. William Stewart stuck to the plan and the sale went through. He was convinced that this new territory would be an asset. Unfortunately, he never really lived to see it come to pass. He died about four years after the deal and not much had changed. Very few Americans wanted to move to that very cold place. And then gold was discovered. And later, petroleum. The economy boomed and people came flooding in. Today, only a few states have more millionaires per capita than the state of Alaska. And of course, that's what we're talking about, the purchase of Alaska. Alaska is a treasure trove of natural resources, and I bet uh, Russia would like to have it back now, but I think we're going to keep it. Not to mention, all of my dad's favorite TV shows seem to be set in Alaska, and it'd be a real shame for those shows not to be on the air. When the U.S. purchased Alaska, many people thought it was not worth the cost. The seller 
was happy to be rid of it at the time. And it looked like William Seward was throwing money down a frozen hole. But in the end, Alaska has proven to be worth the cost many times over. There's another cost I want to talk to you about today. It's the cost of following Jesus. Be sure there is a cost. It could cost you quite a lot to follow Jesus. So we're looking at a few more stories in the Gospel of Mark today, and we'll, we'll explore that question. Is following Jesus worth the cost? So let's get started with a couple verses. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pause right there and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will open up our hearts and minds to receive this message, that you'll help us to understand there is a cost to following Jesus, but that it is absolutely worth it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing we read here is that John is in prison. Well, that doesn't seem right. John the Baptist in prison, isn't he one of the good guys? Wasn't he the forerunner of Jesus, the announcer, the herald who told everyone that Jesus would be arriving soon? Why would he be put in prison? Good question. Now, I used to write a blog pretty regularly. Remember when blogging was like a big thing? Well, my blog is still out there, michaelshockley.wordpress.com. michaelshockley.wordpress.com. It's got a lot of articles about spiritual things, uh, answering some questions, church things. And, but the post, the, the post that got the most readers by far was titled, I'm headed to prison. I'm headed to prison. Uh, people apparently found the idea of me being sent to the slammer pretty intriguing. And when they found out that our very own Billy Honeycutt was headed to prison as well, it, it was very interesting to them. And I, I think they might have been somewhat disappointed when they learned that I was going to the prison as a visitor, not as an inmate. I was going to, to visit with the folks there and minister to the men who are incarcerated. I don't know if you remember, some of you were there at the very beginning. One of our very first mission projects we did as a church family was to make cookies for the Kairos Prison Ministry. COVID-19 has messed up Kairos for right now. It's been very difficult to get back in the prisons to do ministry. Hopefully we can do that soon, and we'll be making some cookies again soon. Now, but, but what about John? Why was John sent to prison? In short... It was because he stood up for what is right. King Herod would often send for John. Herod isn't one of the good guys. There's several King Herods in the New Testament. This is the one who was uh, alive during the time of the ministry of Jesus. And this King Herod would often send for John because he liked talking to him about spiritual things. However, he got very upset with John when John confronted him about a problem in his life. To be specific, Herod had stolen his brother's wife. Well, that's a problem. But it also happened that his brother's wife was the daughter of another one of his brothers. So yeah, this was Herod's niece. He stole his brother's wife, who also happened to be his niece. 
Is that a problem? Um, yeah, it's a problem. And John confronted him about it and, and said, Herod, if, if you want to be a believer, you talk about wanting to be a believer, but you can't be doing this. So what did Herod do when John spoke truth to him? Herod put him in prison. Doesn't seem fair. John did the right thing in speaking truth to power. And John had this special connection to Jesus, right? He was the forerunner, right? We would expect someone like John to get some special treatment or be spared from his trouble because of his faith. Instead, it seems John's faith is what got him in trouble. John paid a price for following Jesus. What are we supposed to make of that? We expect to see John complaining about his unfair treatment, but we don't. What did John know that we don't seem to know? Well, John understood that the story wasn't about him. It wasn't, he, he was the forerunner, the announcer, the herald of Jesus. But now that Jesus had arrived, John had fulfilled his purpose. His purpose was to, to show Jesus to the world. Once the king is in town, the guy blowing the trumpet to say, hey, the king is coming. Well, he needs to stop blowing the trumpet at that point because the king is there. It was time for John to bow out gracefully. Human nature is to cling to power, to cling to authority and prestige and position. We have a hard time stepping aside and letting go. We live in a world where the powerful people seem obsessed with keeping the power they have and getting more and more power. And I I don't care what political stripe you are or who you support. The fact of the matter is, by and large, the powerful people of the world are in love with their power. It was a big deal for John to step aside. You see, Jesus' people are called to live a different kind of life. Not to be interested in our own power, but to use whatever has been put in our hands, whether it be money or power or prestige or position, to help move people towards Jesus. We're a community of life and love, leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That's, that's who we are. As Jesus followers, we understand that everything we have is only temporary. Someday, someone else will have everything that is now considered yours. Your job. Someday someone else will have that job. Or that job may not even exist. Someday someone else will have your house. Someday someone else will have your money because you can't take it with you. Someday someone else will have your position of influence in, in the family, at work, in whatever organization. You can be CEO of the whole planet, but it can only last a finite amount of time. Eventually, your time's over. Jesus teaches us to hold loosely to the things of this world because we can't keep them. God has trusted these things to us for a while, and we need to use them for his glory. Even John, who was given this incredible place of honor, John, who was so amazing in his message that some people thought he must be the Messiah, he knew it was time for him to relinquish that and step out of the way. John paid the cost, and to him it was worth it. Jesus said in verse 15, the time is fulfilled. Time is fulfilled. John had done his part. It was time for John to step down 
and Jesus to step up. It could be time for you to step out of the way and let someone else shine. Or, or it might be time for you to step up and take on the ministry that God has prepared for you. We're funny creatures, we humans. We, we tend to hold on to the things we should let go of. And we're afraid to reach for the things that God has put in front of us. John was willing to sacrifice his position and his power and even his freedom. That was the cost. It was a high cost, but he was willing. Jesus began preaching that people should repent and believe. Those are two things that have to go together in salvation, repentance and belief. You need to turn from your old ways, the sinful ways, the selfish, destructive ways, and trust in Jesus. Now, does that mean you're never going to mess up again? <laughs> if only. Does that mean you'll never get frustrated and say words you should not say? Mm, if only. Does that mean you'll never have an argument with the important people in your life because you're so sanctified and you're too busy polishing your halo to say or do anything out of the way? I wish. Here's what it does mean. It means you know you need to change. Deep down, you need to change the way you live, the way you think, the way you act. And you want to change and you're determined to change. That is the repentance part of you, turning from the old ways. You, you don't want that to be your life anymore. You're determined to be different. And the second part, belief, is recognizing that Jesus is the one who creates the change. If you are simply trying to change yourself, that might work if you're trying to change your eating habits or, or something like that, but fundamentally change who you are on the inside spiritually and, and in your personality and in your behavior, it is going to take more than simple self-help and human effort. You need to recognize Jesus as the one who creates the change in you. So people heard this message and it resonated with them. They knew they needed to change. Jesus was losing his forerunner in John the Baptist, but he's about to gain some followers. Let's read a couple more verses, Mark 1, 16, 17, and 18. So as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So Jesus has all the power of God. We, if anyone could do it by themselves without help, it would have been him. But that's not what he chose to do. Jesus was and is the Savior sent from God. He was and is the Son of God and one with God. But in taking on humanity, he limited himself spatially. In practical terms, it means once Jesus became a man, he could only be in one place at one time. And his earthly ministry would last a few short years. There's simply not time for him to personally contact and interact with all of these people. So Jesus invested his time and energy into a, into a comparatively small group of people. He created this community of men and women who embraced his teaching and would share it with others. He would teach and mentor them, and they in turn would teach and mentor others. 
And the most notable of these, this group were, were called the Twelve Disciples or the Twelve Apostles. And uh, we're about to meet some of these guys who would become apostles. You see, these disciples, these first people who followed Jesus would become part of a movement that continues to this day, a movement that you are a part of. Recreate Church could potentially be traced all the way back to these fishermen by the Sea of Galilee. We are doing now something that was started all the way back then, this is where the Jesus community began. So most of Jesus' ministry was centered around the Sea of Galilee. It's still there today. It's a freshwater lake in the north of Israel, and it's called by several other names in the Bible, including Gennesaret, Tiberias, and Kinnereth. The region of Galilee was considered a very rustic, backward place. The, the people in Jerusalem looked at the Galileans as rednecks and hillbillies. So these guys that we are about to meet were probably less like theology professors and a little more like Larry the Cable Guy. They were hardworking people, absolutely, but they didn't have much formal education. They would have been considered uncultured by the well-to-do and few prominent rabbis from Jerusalem bothered to go up to Galilee because who, who wants your followers to be these bunch of rednecks and hillbillies? But that is exactly where Jesus went to gather his first followers. Now, if you're listening to this message from somewhere else in the world, um, our church ministry is based in a place called Hillsville, Virginia, and it is in Appalachia not Appalachia, just to be clear on that. It's the people who actually live here say Appalachia. We're in rural Appalachia. It is what you would consider uh, a redneck hillbilly kind of place, and, and we don't see that as an insult. It is a rustic place, and one might think that uh, God wouldn't be interested in doing things in rustic places with a bunch of people who, who maybe won't make the news for uh, accomplishments but when Jesus chose his first disciples, he went to a place not so different than here. Maybe not so different than where you live, that outsiders might look and see all the flaws of the place that you live or, or criticize the, the ways of the culture of your people. Well, just remember that Jesus went to the unexpected people. He didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem and pick his, his closest followers from among the most prominent and polished people. He chose regular, everyday, hardworking people. And most of the regular, everyday, hardworking people around the Sea of Galilee were involved in fishing. Sea of Galilee was famous for fish. Lots of fishing villages along the shore, and the local economy evolved largely around fishing. So Jesus is walking along, and he sees these two brothers casting a net into the sea. Their names are Simon and Andrew. Simple guys, but they loved God. It, it's possible that they had followed John the Baptist before he went into prison. It's possible, even probable, that they heard Jesus speak. So it wasn't as though it was completely out of the blue for uh, 
to encounter Jesus, but they certainly weren't prepared for what he said to them. Jesus walked up to them and said, follow me. Follow. To follow somebody means something different in our present culture. Following is this feature of social media where, where you, you choose to follow the posts of somebody for whatever reason. Social media influencers boast about how many followers they have. But, but all, quote, following means is somebody clicked on a button and pictures and words might show up on the social media feed from this person that they're following. The modern idea of following requires no commitment whatsoever. In fact, if a person that you follow on social media doesn't provide content that entertains you, you can just click that same button and unfollow them. It's that simple. It's a very much a, a one-way thing. Now, some people treat following Jesus like that. They like some of the things he says. He's, Jesus is very quotable, like some of the promises that he makes, but there's no real commitment to a different sort of life. The people in Jesus' own day, unfortunately, did the same thing. They saw his miracles. They, some of them received his miracles in the way of healing, or he would, he would multiply food and feed them. But as soon as he started saying stuff that held them accountable for the way they were living, they clicked unfollow. When Jesus says, follow me, he is not asking you to watch your news feed for some quote or some picture. He's asking you to become his disciple. A disciple means one who learns from another. In that culture, the disciples of a rabbi would literally follow them around and try to emulate what they did. Now, we don't know what went to the minds of Simon or Andrew, but we do know what they did. They immediately left their nets behind and started following Jesus as he walked down the shoreline. To leave their nets represented this huge step of commitment. They were walking away from the only life they had ever known to follow Jesus into this unknown future. That was the cost, the initial cost. Now, thankfully, they didn't give up fishing altogether. In fact, Jesus told them that they would be fishing for another kind of catch. He gave that famous line, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Or in other words, you will fish for people. What an interesting way to look at it. In the Old Testament, there was this imagery of people being caught like a fish on a hook. But in that context, it was for judgment, that people were being caught, snagged in their sin and, and be judged. Well, Jesus turned that around completely. He turned it into a positive. Jesus said he would send his followers into the world, not like fishermen catching uh, a fish to be brought out and eaten, but as, as rescue workers, pulling people out of a dangerous situation, pulling people out of a world that's headed for destruction and saving them from judgment. It's a very different idea of fishing. If such a thing had existed at the time, I've got to wonder if Jesus might have told them, follow me and I will make you claw machine operators. You know those things that there's sometimes the corn operated little claw thing. It drops the claw down and it picks up the, the stuffed animal or you try to 
anyway. But the point here is they would be rescuing people from a place where they were stuck in this, this world of sin. Simon and Andrew weren't the only two people that Jesus met that day. He walked a little further and met some more people. Let's look at Mark 1, 19-20. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So two more brothers, James and John. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left their father and the family business behind. The fact that they had their own boat and people working for them shows us that they were, for the time, very successful people. So understand, Jesus wasn't calling them away from a bad situation. It wasn't as though that, that James and John were, were, you know, in a really bad place, you know, messed up on drugs, having, you know, bad relationship problems, or it wasn't as if they were contemplating suicide or anything like that. Jesus absolutely will rescue people out of those situations and thousands more. But I want you to understand that when Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't talking to people in, he wasn't saying, you know, come out of this very bad place. He was asking them to walk away from a comfortable situation. James and John had a stable future, a good family. It cost them something to walk away from that. Now, what would you do if for once in your life you had a stable financial situation, a world that makes sense, uh, strong family relationships, you know, a job that you love, everything's good, financially secure, and the Lord called you into something else would you do it would it be worth the cost hmm. great question and that is the question is following jesus worth the cost so what happened to these five men in our story for today john the baptist simon and andrew and james and john the sons of zebedee well john the baptist as we know went to prison and while he was there he went through a time of discouragement he sent a messenger to jesus and asked him you know jesus did i do the right thing here did i do the right thing by telling people to follow you i mean here i am in prison what was it worth it he did ask the question i appreciate his honesty honesty god can handle your honesty ask him questions jesus told the messenger to go back and tell john what he had seen the miracles that were taking place, the blind see, the lame walk, people are being healed, the dead are being raised, lives are being changed by the gospel. That is a measuring stick of value for sure. John knew that Jesus, that following Jesus was worth it, that it was worth it, that he made the right decision. Transformed lives, that's worth the cost. What about James and John? Well, they were in the inner circle of Jesus. They became such great spokesmen for the gospel that Jesus gave them a nickname, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Sounds like a motorcycle gang, doesn't it? <laughs> James became the first of the 12 apostles to lay down his life for the cause, the first martyr. And John was the last of the 12 to die, possibly the only one who died of natural causes. 
But John lived long enough to write four books of the New Testament. We have the three epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. For them, it was absolutely worth it to follow Jesus. Andrew, the brother of Simon, he became a great missionary. He carried the gospel all over the place. Many modern nations recognize Andrew as the man who brought them the message of salvation. It's interesting. I, you know, I don't really go for the patron saint thing so much. I don't think you'll find that in the Bible, but but a lot of places will uh, say, you know, this is this guy's really important to us. Andrew was one of those guys from many nations, and he carried the good news as far away as a place that has been on the news lately, uh, Kiev in Ukraine. Some people believe that Andrew was the first one to bring this message of Jesus to Ukraine. It was worth it to Andrew. What about Simon? Simon would go on to become the most outspoken of all the followers of Jesus, and Jesus would give him a new name, Peter. We know him mostly by that name, Peter. After the resurrection, Simon Peter preached so powerfully that thousands of people became believers at once, and later on he met a young man named John Mark and helped him write this book that we are studying right now. These guys will tell you that following Jesus is absolutely worth the cost, but I can't blame you if you still have some doubts because the cost is high. Let me end with another story that Jesus told. He said there was once a man digging in a field when he uncovered a hidden treasure. He immediately reburied the treasure sold everything he had, and went and bought the field. Following Jesus is something like that. To everybody else, it just looks like a field, you know, a patch of dirt. It does not seem to be anything worth giving up everything for. But we know there's treasure hidden there that is totally worth giving up everything else, if only we can have the treasure that is in Jesus. Following Jesus will cost you something, absolutely. You will almost certainly have to make sacrifices. There will be times when other people around you are doing the wrong thing, and it seems like it gets them an advantage, cutting corners, cheating, or being dishonest. That is something you cannot do, and in the short term, it will cost you something. There may be some people who will pick on you or even persecute you because of your faith. There may be times where you miss out on power or prestige or money. You might even suffer for taking a stand, but it is worth it. It is worth it. There are blessings in this world that are so far beyond what we give up for Jesus, and there are blessings in the next world that are so far beyond our imagination that we can't even conceive of them. Jesus is worth it. Lord willing, we will be back together for in-person services next week. Um, we got some testimonies coming up of some transformed lives. You want to know whether it's worth it? Transformed lives, that's a huge, huge thing. So I, I look forward to sharing that with you. God bless you folks. Hope you have a wonderful week. Don't forget, Jesus is worth it. Jesus loves you, and so do we. See you next time.